I'm Glenn Bowerman, and this is a Spacing Radio Toronto Municipal Election Preview. Welcome, everybody, to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. This is our special uh, election kind of preview uh, with uh, two illustrious and alliterative guests, uh, John and Jen. Uh, that's uh, John Lawrence, uh, senior editor at Spacing Magazine, and uh, Jennifer Pagliaro, uh, crime reporter, uh, focusing on youth justice for the Toronto Star. Welcome, you both. Hey, thanks for having me. I wanted to begin to talk about the upcoming municipal elections uh, by first talking about what just happened provincially. I, I want to get your reflections on wh- what do you think four to more years means at the provincial level for uh, this upcoming Toronto election and uh, and for whatever council may look like uh, at the end of October? I mean, I can start. I think Toronto residents more than anyone living in Ontario have become pretty accustomed to the Ford way of things. You know, listeners will know that, you know, we had both Ford brothers at one point on city council. And, you know, I was just traveling in the U.S. and and reflecting on, you know, what it means to have one of those brothers now uh, leading the province and, and winning a, a pretty hefty majority there uh, for his uh, PC party. And I think what it means for the city, you know, when you look at, when you zoom out and look at the map and you see a province that's uh, particularly blue this time around, save for a few ridings that went to the NDP in Northern Ontario, you see this sort of island that is the city of Toronto that's uh, predominantly uh, liberal or NDP and a lot of those ridings flip back and forth. And I think what that tells you is that Toronto, uh, you know, as a major city in the province, as the largest city in Canada, has its own wants and and needs that aren't necessarily served by a progressive conservative government, and that it requires additional advocacy, it and it requires additional work to have those needs met. And I think it will be very difficult, especially in a, you know, are we in a post-pandemic? I don't know what we call this period that we're in, but it's especially challenging and it requires, I think, strong leadership on the part of municipal government. And I think that's uh, how we kind of lead into, you know, a conversation about about city politics. Yeah, John? So I think that the the piece that I'm looking at and that has kind of intrigued me over the last couple of years is that the Ford government has a great deal of interest in land use planning and in transportation planning and transportation construction. You know, we have this big project, the Ontario line going through. They made really quite substantial changes to planning laws and planning regulations. And so what the Ford government has done, and this is through Steve Clark, who's municipal affairs and housing minister, is really kind of reach into local government and what local government does. I think you could argue that in some ways they've done things that have long been needed to do, right? We, you know, we needed that Ontario line. We needed to find a way of uh, short circuiting the sort of the kind of feedback loop of opposition to affordable housing. The, the way that they've done it is through ministerial zoning orders and, you know, kind of ramming th- things through. So there is that kind of tension between the two levels of government, but it's definitely a very engaged area. And I couldn't say that 
I like I fully expect it to be that plus much more over the next four years. Yeah, you mentioned transit projects. Um, three years ago, I I wouldn't have put bet any money one way or the other that something like the Ontario line would go forward or that we wouldn't uh, return to some debate again about what it looks like or you know the various uh, transit projects that have been floated over and over again by all levels of government and and various regimes. But I I, I wonder, does four more years of Doug Ford's government kind of uh, make the future of Ontario Line and those other projects uh, more secure? I mean, it definitely is is a project he put on the books that, you know, the same goes for, you know, the Scarborough Subway, uh, Bloor Danforth extension. You know, these are things that his government has promised often. And I think John can speak to this when you see sort of shifting um, governments over longer stretches of time is when you start to get really weird things like tunnels being filled in. So there is that, that I think that is a positive thing. Of course, they still have to come up with all of the money for these projects to be able to finish them. And, you know, that will be on their books and governments often don't like to have that kind of debt on their books. So that is something to consider. But, you know, this is the government that uh, introduced and, and approved of those things. And so it's they're accountable for finishing them. It's a funny phenomenon with Ford, right? So Ford likes to be popular. I think he likes to think of himself as a builder. So there's a kind of a, there's a weird throwback to Bill Davis in that respect, um, that he, plus the fact that, you know, because in the pandemic, everybody's budget deficit numbers went completely berserk, that they could kind of slide things through. And it's like, oh, you know, a few billion here, a few billion there. You know, it stands out less than it did before. I think the open question to my mind on with these big infrastructure projects is that is the associated land use planning piece, right? So they, and this could go in lots of different ways, right? So, you know, there's part of the planning laws that they passed, which require a lot of density around rapid transit stations, like a lot of density. Mm. You know, I think that there's some thinking that, you know, that the density can take different forms, right? It, it doesn't necessarily need to be like this sort of spike around a subway station. It can be more decentralized and, you know, more mid-rise, but over a larger sort of um, area. And that's where it's interesting, where we'll see some interesting dynamics between the province and the municipal government, because I mean, I think that the, you know, the province really wants things to move quickly and they want a lot of approvals. They've got friends who are developers. So, you know, you'll see there's that, that kind of gold rush around the transit stations. But does the city have the ability to sort of rethink the way it deploys density in the city in order to make the most of those transit investments, but without just building, you know, these like ridiculously high skyscrapers everywhere? Something that uh, I don't think we'll be returning to because of, uh, uh, you know, another uh, Doug Ford government is uh, the effects of Bill 5, uh, the slashing of uh, Toronto Council. And I, I know you've both uh, written about that, you, even if there was appetite to return to it uh, at the local level. I believe at least the NDP had something in their platform about uh, sort of undoing that. Uh, but I don't think we'll be talking about that in the next four years. It does make me wonder you know, are there governance changes at the local level that the city should uh, should be exploring? We we talked a lot about those potentialities when this first happened. I'm t- I'm talking, you know, um, kind of smaller local community councils, that kind of thing, to sort of make up for the fact that we're still going to have another council where 
you know, a single councillor may represent over a hundred thousand constituents. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely no going back on Bill 5 at this point. You know, even if there's local community support, I know that Tory's office and Tory himself are not super interested in that. And you can you could see why, because he does have pretty firm grasp of council, even with uh, a number of open seats in this upcoming election, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But, you know, there is always uh, been that opportunity for democratic reform. There's all kinds of things that have been floated or even uh, tabled and approved, like rank ballots, uh, which were then reversed. Uh, you know, that more goes to, I guess, the, the makeup of council, and it's already too late to implement those things for this election. But in terms of the actual functioning of council, yeah, you know, you mentioned, um, you know, the way we deal with uh, community council issues. And for people listening who don't know, community council deals with all kinds of things on a, a very specific ward level, everything from, you know, if your neighbor uh, wants to put up a fence that's higher than the bylaw, or if they want to remove a tree, you know, I recently wrote about the tree issue, like uh, all of us, like kind of T.O. poly watchers always laugh when there are these tree debates at council and you see Councillor Stephen Holiday and one of the downtown councillors kind of um, going at each other because of these uh, tree issues in each other's ward and kind of questioning, like, do we really need to take up the time of the entire council representing 3 million people in this city to deal with like the single tree in the backyard of someone in Etobicoke. And I think counselors themselves are split on that, but I think the average person would feel like maybe those are things we that are best left to either to staff or to, you know, the way they do things in some American cities, which are community member appointed bodies that are smaller groups that deal with like very hyper local issues. There's tons of stuff we haven't tried. I'm sure, John, I know you've looked at like very specific types of uh, examples from other cities in that. I mean, the governance part that I think about and which is the sort of evergreen problem in the city is that homeowners, like people who live in detached single family homes, have their not their finger on the scale, their whole foot and sometimes their body on the scale of planning and, you know, are able to distort the way the city is built out in ways that are deeply problematic. You know, it, it expresses itself in terms of housing availability, housing prices, um, the, you know, the, the utility of transit investments, like a whole range of things. And that is a governance problem, but it's kind of a governance problem that is really not about the numbers of people sitting around the council table. It's about the degree of influence that individual councillors have. And, you know, the amount of importance they assign to the loudest voices, which tend to be homeowner groups. And I know, you know, the planning department is very alive to this problem. And the, you know, in a weird way, the provincial government is alive to the problem too, because of some, you know, and you can see that in some of the rules that they've passed, which basically bypass that NIMBY pushback. But it's still, you know, if we believe in the idea of local government and government close to the city and the people in the city, then we have to figure out a way to that council better represents the people in the city and not just homeowners. Right. But as as Jen mentioned, uh, Tory has no appetite uh, to to readdress uh, Bill Five because it, it's been working for him. It looks like he's relatively unchallenged at this point, although that could change at any time. But uh, 
I have to wonder if he wins、uh, another mayoralty, if there'll be any impetus to look at any governance style changes because you, you don't really shoot the horse you rode in on. Yeah, it's it always happens that way, right? Like it's easy to talk about democratic reforms as like the term comes to a close, and then these same people are reelected, and they're they're suddenly disinterested again, right? And and doing any of this, and we've seen that happen kind of over and over again. In some ways, it's kind of a miracle that the ranked ballots vote passed in the first place, and them reversing it to me was more classic council behavior than approving it in the first place. I mean, I think that the.、Um I mean, he's not going to do anything.、Yeah. And honestly, I think the most important thing, and you know, if any of your listeners are sort of interested in this, the most important thing at the moment is for somebody to step forward and challenge Tory and make him debate and make him defend his policies, and you know, talk about other futures for the city, right? That you know are not quite as like devotedly tethered to the status quo and to. Cars into like ridiculously expensive highway projects that no one will use, and all of that stuff, right? So, you know, I think that Jennifer Keysmat, the former city planner, chief planner, did a really important thing when she challenged Tory in 2018 and forced him to talk about housing in a way that he was not going to. And I really wish that somebody would do that again.、Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean that that kind of brings me to there was a lot said about how. Abysmally low the voter turnout was for the provincial election, and、uh, you know there's lots of reasons given or you know、uh, arguments to be made for why. I, I'm just wondering if if there is a way in this election when it seems like the incumbent mayor is a shoe in, but as as Jen said, there are、uh, you know、uh, new vacancies, a certain amount of vacancies、uh, coming to council seats. You know, is there a way to really engage people? In the coming months,、uh, I mean, you know, throughout the dog days of summer,、uh, to to kind of ensure that、uh, that we see a better turnout locally than we did in this、uh, just very unfortunate、uh, Ontario provincial election、uh, in, in terms of、uh, engagement. It's very concerning, right? Like I just ran into、uh, a council candidate actually for one of those open seats, and I was just chatting with them about this exact problem. You know, like what was their view on you know how this was going to play out? And I, I think it is a concern, especially for candidates. You know, you're second to the door, and people were obviously disinterested. And here you are again, trying to first of all explain why you're there. People don't really. Know a lot about the different levels of government in general. People can get them confused. It's not part of their day to day lives. And then you've you've got like the timing of the election, which for the municipal election is always tough, right? Like, you know, people don't really tune in until after Labor Day a lot of the time. Even like the way that we shape our municipal coverage leading up to the election、um, often keeps that in mind. Like we often save our most important. Public policy type stories for for later on after the summer because we know that people don't engage with that content、um, when they're away at the cottage or、mm-hmm. or elsewhere or busy with kids. So it can be a real challenge. Like I want to say that、um, you know people should be trying to drum up that debate now, but I know we all know people in our lives, right, who open up the list of candidates while they're standing in line to vote. And I know one of the things our team had talked about was like what kind of very important. Uh, information can we give people in like a very easily digestible format? Because there will always be those people who just open up an article at that late juncture and like, can I give them like a cheat sheet, basically?、Um, but one of the things I was talking to this council candidate about is like, you're totally right. Like with the 
with the mayor's race almost like assured this early on, people are are thinking like, you know, what's the point? But they forget that they, first of all, have to vote for a counselor and they they always forget that they have to vote for a school board trustee. <laughs> like no one ever remembers the school boards, right? Um, and we're guilty of that too, like not, not putting that in our coverage. But there's actually always tons of like really important issues happening at that level. And, and even if you don't have a kid uh, or don't even plan on having kids, it's still like an important part of local democracy. We've seen when school board issues can get like really, really messy and we don't want those types of issues in our communities. So yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. I don't have a good answer for how to engage people, especially like this early on. So in, in our profession, um, in the provincial election, the one mistake that a lot of media made, which became a sort of a self, or became part of a self-fulfilling prophecy is to declare the election to be boring. And when you keep reading that it's boring and it's a foregone conclusion, then people won't vote. So I think that it's incumbent on, you know, people covering the election, this municipal election to not to go that place, right? It's, you know, we know who's going to win, but there are like a, a lot of really, you know, to Jennifer's point, there's a lot of really important issues. I think there are a lot of um, sort of turning point issues, actually, that the city faces because the pandemic exposed so many fissures in our society and in the city and in the way we do things that, that are being compounded by the, you know, the insanity in the housing market, the cost of living and a lot, a lot of things that are kind of making it difficult to live in Toronto for a lot of people. This is a, this is an inflection point and the, you know, voters for sure and the media have to sort of go to the politicians and say, this is an inflection point. Like this is actually a place where we have to make some tough choices. And what are you going to do? Instead of this boring, Tory's going to win. I don't, you know, I can go do something else that evening so yeah i'd love to know like who plans on uh like john mentioned like like the 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 challenging the mayor during the election that's tough like i just looked up the candidates like there's seven other candidates right now i don't recognize any of them like we don't have a keys mat like figure doesn't mean it it can't happen Mm -hmm. but i'd be curious to to challenge uh local councillor candidates right so looking at an example like the vote that council took recently on active to you know that was a project spacing's covered extensively john you've covered like that was if you had told us this in 2010 under Rob Ford administration, like never ever would have happened closing down the lakeshore for, for anyone but cars. And, you know, it was the kind of thing that was praised as like, oh, look at what we did during the pandemic, something new and innovative. And then when push came to shove, we had, you know, Tory and counselors saying like, oh yeah, maybe we got to pull back on that and like only do it like special circumstances sometimes, but like, we're probably never really going to do this again, except for like, very you know extenuating circumstances and i'd be curious to know from counselor candidates like who is prepared to go in there and challenge the status quo of decisions like that because even the left wing of council as we've been kind of recording over the last couple of years has grown in some ways complacent during this pandemic and has been part of this sort of kumbaya moment um that everyone's kind of getting along. And the problem when everyone gets along is that you don't have that kind of debate that John was talking about that's so vital at any level of government. Well, and I mean, this speaks to the parochialism of 
uh, Toronto politics, right? Because, you know, you look at what's happening in a lot of other cities and what happened during the pandemic in a lot of other cities in terms of the, the way public space is used, the way, you know, the road system is used, the prioritization of, um, you know, different forms of mobility and so on. I mean, we just kind of, like, we're just kind of going along just like the way we've always gone along, whereas there are places which have just made a sharp turn in response to the things that they learned about and their cities. And, you know, to me, that's the, you know, maybe that's the ballot question. It's like, what is that turn? Like, what did you learn through all of this? You must have learned something. And honestly, I sometimes think they haven't learned a thing, right? They just, you know, we just go back to doing things the way we've always done them. You know, what what comes, what comes, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm personally guilty of exactly what you were saying, John, of, of that kind of like, uh, you know, the die is cast. It's another one of these kinds of elections. Uh, um, you know, and that's probably not, uh, not great, uh, for, um, pitching my own stuff to, to potential listeners. Uh, come, come listen to this podcast about this probably very boring election. And I, I take your point. Uh, I guess maybe I, I'm bitter because, you know, I, I feel like a lot of the times the die is cast and, and with the Bill 5 changes that, that seem to just solidify things. But, um, I, I keep, wanting a kind of like a take the garbage out kind of election. But uh, like you said, we, we don't really work that way. But this also isn't a, this isn't a normal year. Like, like you said, um, we, we kept saying like uh, that we shouldn't return to the, to normal. There should be a new normal. And uh, I'd like to see how, how that is re- represented. I would also like to see counselors of every stripe, be they incumbents or, or fresh faces, hopefully, you know, kind of make a pitch for, make a pitch themselves about why this is important, not just why it's important to vote for them, but explain at the doorstep, well, what do you do? Because I, 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 you know, I have dear personal friends who are intelligent people that don't really know maybe even who their counselor is and certainly don't know what they do or why it's important to vote for them. You know, part of the problem is that, you know, the power of incumbency allows people to run on their reputation mm-hmm. and, you know, pretty secure in the knowledge that, you know, very few people outside the city hall press gallery can say with certainty that you stood on for this thing and that thing. The, you know, the sort of the glass is half full part of this storyline is that we have a lot of vacancies, right? And, you know, so there are, there are going to be new faces mm-hmm. and there were a fair number of new faces in 2018. There's an opportunity to, you know, to have discussions differently, which I think is important. And, you know, I don't want to prejudge how that's going to play out. You know, it could be that people just will sort of fall into the roles that they're expected to, you know, I'm going to run in this riding and this is what I expect people to do. And I'm going to be just like Anna Bailao or whatever, but not necessarily. So, um, you know, so there's cautiously optimistic. There are kind of like two, I think, buckets of council races that both kind of excite me uh, as someone who covered City Hall for a long time and is now just like a faithful observer, which is like there's the incumbency, which is always a challenge, right? Like, yes, like the incumbents do have such a, a major advantage, but there are people that are coming back who ran in for the previous term. Um, and and often we know that people have to run, you know, three, maybe four times uh, to even have a chance. And we're seeing people return. There are, there are folks for suburban wards who have been 
continuously, you know, I don't want to say campaigning because it's illegal to campaign outside of election period, but who have been making inroads in the community and mm-hmm. are once again running. And it is possible to unseat an incumbent, right? Like that's not, it seems impossible, but it's not. And there is a few races there that I'm super interested in. And then there's the open races, which is just inherently exciting because you get a new counselor no matter what. And I think that there it could go it could go a couple of ways. You know, you could get a candidate who considers themselves to be, you know, center or, you know, leaning in one direction. And then you're never really sure how that plays out with the Tory administration. Or you get like a, you know, someone who is maybe much more radically left than we're even used to. Um, and that could totally change the dynamic of the opposition that Tory would face on council and and really gives the opportunity for for more of that debate. And it also messes with the old allegiances on council if, you know, any one incumbent gets unseated, for example. So I don't think it's hopeless in that regard. And I do think people should pay close attention for that reason. I actually think people need to pay more attention than they did when you saw the left wing of council, you know, also just running for their seats, because you're going to get people who may to a downtown audience appear to be progressive. And I think we have to really challenge what being progressive in Toronto means these days, because I think Tory also considers himself to be a progressive person. And I think a lot of people would disagree with that uh, based on his his actions. And so, and, and I don't mean socially progressive. I mean, we obviously have a, a, a supporter in, in, in things like, you know, the pride parade and LGBTQ rights and women's issues and all of that. But when it comes to, you know, some of the, uh, some of the things that, that John mentioned earlier, just when it comes to active transportation and to housing, you know, what does that mean? And what does it mean to be a progressive on those issues? So I think people have to pay more attention to make sure that they get the counsel they want. Yeah. Well, certainly without, you know, calling out specific counselors, uh, you know, we saw the terrible downtown uh, encampment evictions last summer. And, uh, you know, even among the the left-wing uh, progressive councillors, really what I saw was not that the, these evictions shouldn't have happened, just that they should have happened in a gentler way. So uh, th- there can certainly be more uh, uh, more bolder progressive voices on council. Um, I'll, I'll say that for sure. You know, we need to, we in the media need to be quite attentive to incumbents that really narrow cast the way they vote and the way they make decisions about things in a way that completely ignores large chunks of their actual constituencies. And so I am going to make a name, uh, call out somebody here, which is Denzel Min Wong, who's, uh, you know, I think we calculated at one point that he, you know, he represents, actually represents about 11% of the people who live in Don Valley East. And he, uh, you know, and there are like a lot of tenants in that, um, in that community, there are a lot of lower income people. And I mean, he's casting votes on their behalf that have, that bring no benefit to those people. And that is not uncommon on, uh, among my members of council. So, you know, one of the things that voters should expect in city councillors is their ability to represent all the people who live in their wards, right? Because that is their job is not to sort of say, okay, these are the people that are really, I'm really interested in. The rest of them can, you know, just like not pay attention and I'm going to ignore them. 
Yeah, it's always fascinated me. Like, I, I, I understand why traditionally, like, the left wing of council has represented the downtown core and the right wing has been largely suburban. But if you look at the kinds of issues emerging in these suburban areas, and John, you were saying, like, the things that have become really stark during the pandemic, right? Like, in other, in other suburban wards as well, like the level of tenancy, the need for improved, uh, like, bus transit, like, at the very least, um, for, for improved health services, like, for lower income, uh, resources and and yeah, if you if if you look at the votes of those counselors, you'll find often uh, they are denying shelters in their award. They're denying supportive housing. They're disinterested in like advancing transit, like you said, that would improve housing in those areas or or add new housing uh, around those transit stations because they are primarily voting on behalf of of of, of largely NIMBY loud uh, homeowners and. Uh, yeah, I think that's like I think I think to look at the records of of those counselors and to understand what could be what could be done differently to represent those communities is huge. Let me move on to Jen. You have uh, you were you were formerly covering City Hall uh, for over a decade, I believe. Almost a decade. Almost a decade. Um, and so uh, I figured you you probably have a lot of reflections and uh, maybe. Uh, Maybe some lessons uh, just about that, uh, about those hollowed halls that you can maybe share. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to like, there's definitely been people who have graced the press gallery for much longer than me, you know, including my colleague, David Nichol, who also stepped away from the press gallery, actually stepped away from journalism, who I think was like the longest serving press gallery member for a long time. So I don't want to like overstate my time there, but um you know, and I also don't know how much distance I'll get. You know, a lot of um, I, what I hope to report on the new beat uh, does uh, obviously come back a lot to political will uh, when it comes to, you know, youth justice and gun crime and what we're prepared to do about those things as a society. Because, like, a lot of these issues we already kind of know what the answers are, but it requires a lot of money and resources and uh, addressing really systemic issues. But yeah, in terms of City Hall, like I-, I said this to someone, like, and I think I said this online maybe as well. Like, I think it is one of the most special places in the city, but it can also be one of the most infuriating. <laughs> and I think what most people don't pick up on, and which I've been trying to be kind of like, you know, an advocate for, is how important it is to our daily lives. You know, like I, I think I had some sense. You know, I did my standard, you know, grade 10 civics lesson and cared a lot about city issues through university. But actually being at City Hall made me realize like how much some of these votes that counselors take that don't even actually get debated, but just kind of pass through on the agenda can like really impact like a large segment of the population and like the power that those counselors hold. And especially now, as we were talking about that their their constituency is is so much larger you know most of most over well over 100,000 people and the thing that i have been i guess trying to trying to really f- highlight as i leave is that well those positions those counselor council member positions are really powerful i think that individual residents don't realize the 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 power that they hold in this situation and that does come back to the election but it also comes back to you know the lead up to 
each council meeting and to committee meetings because I can tell you that I've been sitting in a counselor's office or I've called up a counselor, spoken to their staff who are like totally overwhelmed because they've been inundated by like a really, really well-organized campaign that is pushing for an issue to go one way or the other. And just from having those conversations, I know that those campaigns, grassroots or, you know, organized by larger bodies, like do really make a difference. I know that, you know, for example, Mayor Tory is incredibly bothered when people protest outside of his office. Not something people have been doing during the pandemic, but like these kinds of, the kinds of ways in which people speak up for themselves are, I think, the most noticeable at City Hall. You know, you can pack a committee room, you can fill the council chamber, and it's not as difficult as it is, you know, as showing up at Queen's Park to advocate for yourself. And I just really encourage people to think of ways in which they can participate because I think that it actually would make a difference when people feel like they don't have that power, especially now. And so I think that's always going to be my biggest takeaway. You know, if I was, if I was not in this journalistic world, I think that I would have felt compelled by this experience to just like knock down a lot of doors at City Hall and push for the things that I personally care about as a resident, because I I realize now that it actually is possible. And moving on to your new beat, and and you can both get a hand on this ball, there's, uh, I guess, not surprising data coming out of uh, the Toronto Police Service, but uh, vindicating for for some people who have been uh, banging this drum for quite some time. So we've had police's own internal data talking about how uh, you know, systemic racism within the force and and does exist and and it does lead to disproportionate uh, use of force uh, engagements and strip searches uh, amongst uh, minority communities and and uh, you know that that came out this week and uh, it, it's a huge story. It's we're going to be talking about it hopefully um, throughout the summer. Uh, hopefully the story doesn't go away, but it also seems to me that it should have a big impact on this upcoming election because. As we all know, the the police budget is the single largest uh, uh, budget item uh, that city council has to deal with. So I'm just wondering, what do you think or hope uh, that this data will do uh, when it comes to trying to wrangle in that uh, just bloated police budget? And uh, and will it uh, give any energy to, uh, you know, there have always been calls for police reform within city council, but... uh, you know, uh, it's it's usually shouted down. It's very difficult to make changes. Uh, you know, the, the it goes through the board, and you know, the police service itself has uh, total control over operations. So that's a long winded question, but um, I, I guess my question is simply: uh, Will this data be reflected in the kind of conversations we have for this election? You know, I don't want to start like our answers on this in a pessimistic way, but, you know, I think something that's been pointed out by community advocates is that, unfortunately, like you said, none of this data is surprising. Uh, We know that certain uh, segments of the city have been over-policed, and when they are policed, they are treated more poorly than their white counterparts. Uh, And that's exactly what this data shows us. It shows us that if you're Black, you're five times more likely to have force used against you than a white person. And when police tried to look at any kind of other data that would perhaps explain that discrepancy, they found that none of none of the things they looked at could explain it, really other than the fact that there is clearly a problem with systemic racism. Uh, but you or I could have told, you know, your listeners that 
last year. We could have told them that 10 years ago, you know, the star was reporting on race-based data uh, well before I even started working there. And the challenge of that and, and the question of, you know, what will this mean going forward and can it have an impact is, as I, as I don't know, because if we weren't willing to believe people, if we needed the police themselves to actually produce that data to tell us that they were acting in a, in a racist way, I'm not sure that that will now convince them that there is a serious problem. Uh, mm-hmm. They say that they know there is a serious problem. Uh, they, you know, in the chief's statement last week, acknowledge that there is systemic racism on the force. You know, and the and the non-pessimist part of me knows that that's important. Like, it is important to acknowledge that there is a wrongdoing there, um, but it's clearly not enough when it's coming so late. And I think that was really exemplified, you know, covering the police board today, that a lot of the affected communities didn't show up to even speak at the police board. Uh, and I and I think that actually sends a message that they no longer feel like they can engage with this official process. And I think that tells you a lot about where we are right now. Yeah. Here's, you know, we can, there are a couple of ways of getting into this. One is looping back to the governance problem on council because the governance of the police board is, or the police service is problematic. And, you know, the, you know, the mayor does have a lot of influence there, you know, with the chair, you know, with their position on the board. And, you know, Tory could choose to push this or not, right? He, you know, in 2018 um, and 2014, he ran on a platform that really stressed his interest in bringing equity and justice to all Toronto residents, right? And so this is definitely a big piece of that story. I mean, the other part, and this is connected, but in a complicated way, is that the, you're absolutely, Jennifer is absolutely right. I mean, the star has been basically tracking this story since I began in journalism, which was not recently. So now they have this baseline, right? So it's like good on them for getting a baseline, right? They have, they know, they have like a starting point. The problem is that, is the now what problem and is the horse to water problem. And I was very disappointed that Chief Raymer is not going to, is not prepared to use those statistics and, you know, subsequent statistics as a management tool and as a performance tool. And, you know, maybe it's not like, uh, you know, an individual constable, you know, if their numbers are above the numbers of the, the citywide numbers that they, you know, they get their pay docked. That doesn't sound feasible, but there should be a way for the chief of police who claimed to be very committed to this, this insight to press it down to, you know, to the division superintendents and require them to make progress because otherwise it's just descriptive and it's not something that they can say, okay, here's how we can do better. So that's what they need to do is they need to turn it into a performance metric. Yeah. Um, finally, uh, I just wanted to ask, uh, you know, pie in the sky, blue sky thinking, uh, what what do you hope this election is about? What what must be on the agenda? I mean, for me, especially transitioning to this new beat, I mean, it's exactly um, some of the things we just mentioned, you know, as 
a city hall reporter, uh, when every time the budget rolls around, I'm I'm always dreading having to talk about the, you know, the piece of the pie that is the police budget versus a lot of these community programs that uh, we know scientifically, statistically will help young people at risk of violence. And despite like knowing this definitively, uh, we rarely do anything about it. And, uh, you know, it'll be part of my job leading into the municipal election to help make that a part of the municipal uh, election conversation. But I do hope that we have an idea of, you know, what is important to us because what is important to us is what should be funded and the people we elect should have those same needs and values in mind when we elect them. I think it's uh, it's housing. Um, like the the cost of housing is killing the city, and like it's driving people away. It makes it impossible for young people to establish themselves here. It's an incredibly corrosive problem, and where we are in 2022 is way beyond where we were in 2018. 2018, you know, we had housing affordability issues, no doubt, but it just went you know, hockey stick growth. And it requires, it really requires the city to change its approach in very profound ways. And so the sort of business as usual thing, which the council likes to do, is not good enough. And the way the Ford government has cast housing affordability, it's not good enough. Like they have to, they have to find different ways of incenting the construction of housing to increase the supply, to increase the amount of affordable supply and deeply affordable supply, because otherwise the city's going to starve itself of oxygen. I want to thank you, uh, John and Jen, uh, for for taking the time to speak with us on the the what will be the first of many election panels uh, over the summer. Thank you so much. It was, it was uh, wonderful to talk to you both. Thanks so much. And that is the show. Thanks, as always, for listening. If you like this episode, please tell anyone who is able to vote in the Toronto Municipal Election. Give us a like, share, or subscribe, or give us a rating on iTunes, which will help us reach new listeners. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find his music on SoundCloud at Track82. That's all spelled out. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or scoops, you can tweet at us at Spacing Radio, that's all spelled out, or email me at glynbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our website at spacing.ca, or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto. In the meantime, research your local candidates. Cheers. Cheers.